You're listening to Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belisle, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love Maine Radio Facebook page or www.lovemainradio.com for details. Now here are a few highlights from this week's program. Art and kind of creative culture making are part of how we think about the fabric of the project right from the beginning has been, has been really key. It's the whole point of circus is what can a human being achieve and what is that experience like and, and, and how do you make that into art and entertainment and performance. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Berlin City Honda of Portland, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Hardingley Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 194, Under the Big Top airing for the first time on Sunday, May 31st, 2015. Maine is known for constantly reinventing itself, often in fun and interesting ways. Recently, a group of developers has been making significant changes to Thompson's Point in Portland. They will be offering space to businesses, artists, and a variety of creative folk, including a new circus group. Today, we speak with Chris Thompson at Thompson's Point and with Peter Nielsen of the Circus Conservatory of America about their exciting new ventures. Thank you for joining us. As a longtime resident of Maine, I have spent, um, I've made many journeys across the bridge looking towards the Portland Jet Port. And um, over time, I've noticed things like a train and um, the bus station and all kinds of new and exciting things happening over to, if you're going south, happening over to the right. And now something really exciting is happening, and that is Thompson's Point. Today we have with us Chris Thompson, who has developed several hotel and mixed-use projects in New England. Current projects in Maine include Thompson's Point in Portland and a 93-room Hampton Inn Hotel in Lewiston. Chris is an associate professor at the Maine College of Art and author of Felt, Fluxus, Joseph Boyce, and the Dalai Lama. Thanks so much for coming in and talking to me today. My pleasure. And thanks for doing something with that piece of land. I think those of us who have lived in Maine a long time, we've wondered, you know, what's going to be done there? Because right. it's, it's waterfront, it's riverfront. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's an extraordinary site. It's a 30-acre peninsula um, with really, um, you know, it's water on all sides. Um, it's got 295 right next to it, the transportation center right across the tracks. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary piece of land. I mean, you'd search the world over for something with that much innate potential, but that's always been the key. It's potential, and how do you activate that? And that's why it sat so long. It was really a challenging site to pull all the pieces together, the access, the environmental, all of that. There's, we've been at it for about six years, and it's taken that much time to do all the groundwork to really let it come to life. If I remember correctly, there was there was more of an industrial use to it previously. It was, yeah, it's it's an amazing site with a great history. It's um it's an old rail yard, and all of the existing buildings there are a couple down there today still standing, or at least parts of old buildings still standing. 
that were all part of the old um, rail complex, and all the buildings were positioned so that trains could move in them, through them, and get shuttled across the site. And there was this spider web network of uh, tracks leading in and out of buildings. Just an extraordinary site that there's still a couple pieces left that we're trying to bring back to life, and then of course add new, you know, construction to that. So what what drew you to that site? What was it about that that land mass? I think um, a lot of folks like, like, like you made that trip past Thompson's Point and said, how can that not be something else, you know, and, and what will it take for that to be something else? And the answer was a lot of mixed uses that work together in synergy because otherwise it's virtually impossible to carry the cost, um, you know, the infrastructure cost alone of a large project like that. You really need a few uses together that make sense and can happen, you know, more or less together. And so we, um, our group um, has done hotel development, a lot of mixed-use projects, like a lot of small development companies in, you know, northern New England. Um, you know, our group became a fairly multidisciplinary one and that worked in a lot of different, you know, commercial real estate product types. But over the last, you know, maybe 10, 15 years, uh, hospitality and, you know, hotel development and management has been our, you know, key, key focus. So a lot of our projects are either hotel projects or mixed-use projects that have a hotel and hospitality component. We love that business of, you know, welcoming, greeting, making sure people have a great experience, whether it's in a hotel or, you know, in a larger project as a whole. Um, so we had been interested in, and this was back, this was probably seven years ago, um, before a lot of the new hotel rooms had come into the market and we were looking at a couple of different sites in town for a potential hotel site. And um, our family is, um, we're owners in the Red Claws team. And um, so we were talking about, you know, the Red Claws had had a first season and we're looking at possibly doing a practice facility. We had been interested in doing a hotel. We were looking at Bayside, as were they, um, down near where um, Whole Foods is today. Um, and uh, we said, well, geez, you know, if, if, you know, the Red Claws want to do a practice facility and, you know, we could do the hotel project and there was another, you know, group who was interested in doing an office building and pretty soon the project outgrew Bayside. And we said, well, let's look at Thompson's Point. If we have this kind of a mix, you know, we probably could put something together. And that's what led to it. Um, feeling like there was enough critical mass to really make it make sense and leap off the curb and take a risk. And of course, it's like anything in life, any creative project, what you start with and what you end with are often radically different in form, but not often in terms of the impetus and the, you know, the, the, the goal behind it. Um, so I think right from the beginning for the last, you know, six years plus, our goal has been to transform that site into a really great mixed-use project that feels like it's part of Portland. I think when we started, we had a slightly different approach to the site. Um, we had other pieces of the site uh, that, that were not available that since then we've been able to pull in. You know, the suburban propane site, for example, when we started, we were just working around them. Um, since then, we've been able to put a deal together to get them to relocate. So we've been able to really pull that whole peninsula together um, and really look, I think, afresh at what's there. And it's sort of obvious in hindsight um, that, and sort of surprising that this wasn't the way we began the project. I think we assumed we would have to you know, really essentially scrape the site and build new and make the whole site come out of the ground at the same time. But in hindsight, you know, I think um, we, we didn't spend enough time really paying attention to what was there that could be kept 
and those two old existing brick buildings are just extraordinary resources. And then there's a piece of the old Union Station actually at the site, which is sort of remarkable. It was the building that um, for a long time was covered with corrugated metal and plywood and surrounded with debris. It was the thing that everybody saw when they looked over at Thompson's Point and said, that's terrible, we've got to be able to do better. And lo and behold, when you strip all the junk off the outside of that building, it's this extraordinary old steel structure that was part of the old Union Station. It's about a third of the old rail depot that people used to come in and out of, you know, coming into St. John Street. And um, so we restored that and you rebuilt the sort of the, the, the structure of it and put in a new slab and a roof. And that's where we had the, the beer camp event last summer. Well, tell me about that. You, This was the Sierra Nevada Beer Camp, which was the summer of 2014. It was. It was our first um, our first event, and it was about a 3,500-person event. Um, and at the time, we were still finishing up all the off-site infrastructure. There's a lot of work that you know development projects require that you don't see, which is things like road widening and you know underground infrastructure and rail crossings and all that sort of stuff. So that work was nearly complete, and... Um, really um, it was a real hustle to get everything ready to accommodate that that event and sometimes having an event like that is what you need to really kind of push everybody to move at warp speed to get everything done ourselves included and that event was just remarkable it was um, Sierra Nevada's beer camp which was a cross-country tour that Sierra Nevada was part of and there were a couple of key you know um, you know craft brewers Allagash others that were part of the the train and then at each location, they would assemble, you know, this great collection of, um, you know, local, you know, wherever they were, it was the local brewing community who would get together around this core event. And Maine just had this unbelievable turnout. And, of course, Maine has an amazing kind of craft brewing, both, you know, history and present. There's just some amazing folks doing amazing things with beer in all of its forms. And they all converged for this event. And it was just spectacular. And it was really interesting, too, because that depot structure, that old pavilion building, Sierra Nevada and all of its other, you know, uh, locations had just used temporary tents. That was the, you know, the, the way they had assembled it, and that had been their plan before they came to, to Portland. Even though they knew that structure was there, their model was a different one, and then saw that and said, geez, you know, let's let's really think about how to use that thing and set everybody up, all, all the kind of local brewers in this sort of beer hall, you know, environment underneath that roof, and it was just an amazing experience. Everyone who we talked to just just had a blast. So, um, so that was our first event, and it was just a, you know, I think a really remarkable one that let us, I think, see what the site could be when it really became a kind of a hospitality center, you know, and, and that led to, um, we've been talking with Lauren Wayne and the State Theater folks for a while about how to put a, you know, an outdoor concert series together, and so that goes live this summer. We've got um, uh, three concerts already confirmed, and there's, you know, one or two others that, you know, may get done this summer, too. So who will be there? We have Ingrid Michaelson on June 28th. We have Primus and Dinosaur Jr. on July 27th, which I'm particularly excited about. I lived on Primus during college. And um, and then we have Grace Potter on August 1st. So those are the confirmed shows. Should be should be fun. It's kind of a diversity of music represented yeah. there, I yeah. think. Yeah, I, I think so. it's, it's a, a natural extension of what the state theater is doing, which is growing this just world-class um, you know, m- modest in size. I mean, the State Theater's, you know, a couple thousand capacity, and then they got Port City. 
Um, so it's this great, and then of course when they know, you know, when they have something like a Mumford and Sons, I mean, they know how to do a big show and really do it right. And I think Mumford and Sons really showed everybody what Portland could do, and and that's really Lauren and her team, you know, um, really, you know, making sure the experience is is good, and you know, because that's what it's all about. I mean, people will come back if you treat them right and make them feel like they've had a good good experience and good value. And um, I think Portland has such an amazing music community, and she's really, I think, led the charge in giving that a forum, you know, to really, you know, be as great as it can be and bring in some great acts. Um, and so we we're really excited about the partnership with her um, this summer. Love Main Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland, easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaME.com for more information. Love, Maine Radio was brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com. We at Love, Maine Radio are fortunate to have a collaborative relationship with Apothecary by Design and to offer an ongoing speaker series. The next speaker in the series is me. We invite you to join me and hear more about finding wellness in water and nature. We're going to be discussing the brain, the body, and the deep blue sea. During this event, we'll explore the power that water has to relax, restore, and revive our spirits from a neurobiological perspective. And we'll give you some tips for putting these things into action in your own life. This event will take place on Monday, June 1st, 2015, from 5 to 7 p.m. at the offices of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street in Portland. For more information, visit the Love, Maine Radio Facebook page or lovemainradio.com. This event is free, but we'd love to know if you're coming. We hope to see you on Monday, June 1st, 2015, from 5 to 7 p.m. It's going to be a great time, and you'll learn a lot. Plus, I just like having my friends around me. Thanks. You also had Sam Van Aken and the Tree of Forty Fruit. So you we have do. had music. You have music scheduled and art in the past and in the future. I'm assuming. Yeah. So so Sam Van Aken's Tree of Forty Fruit project is this wonderful experiment that has you know literally borne fruit where he began by um, um, well, well he began with a, a question like all great art you know starts with asking the right question and he wondered what had happened to all these great varieties of heirloom stone fruit that he knew were out there in the world you know the such and such plum from the 14th century I mean in theory, someone's still growing this, but I can't find them anywhere. 
and it's because as the you know the world of monoculture you know takes hold you know like our kid doesn't want to eat the yellow plum so we don't want to buy it so the store doesn't want to carry it and pretty soon the farmer doesn't have any reason to grow it and you know of course that's the trend over time and, and Maine used to be I learned from this great artist Sam Van Aken who we've been working with Maine used to be one of the nation's top producers of stone fruit so like you know which is fruit with a pit you know plums etc now where did that go and so he started trying to figure out, well, where are these varieties and how can I find them? And he was a Syracuse uh, university, actually still is a professor at Syracuse, um, and found this orchard in upstate New York that had been part of, I think, the state university system or something that was about to get bulldozed because, you know, they couldn't, you know, continue to support the growing of these varieties because they couldn't find a market for them. So he convinced them to let him take over the lease for a while and cull what he could and bring it home with them and figure out how to get it you know, at least uh, stabilized. And then he figured, okay, well, I don't have, you know, X thousand acres uh, of a farm of my own. Uh, how do I get creative and efficient and figure out how to graft multiple different varieties under the same tree? So he calls it an orchard on a tree. So you get one trunk up to, you know, there's 40 different varieties that he works with. So it's this really interesting, you know, pretty radical preservation of these great historic varieties that our you know, grandparents and great-grandparents used to be able to find and eat and taste. And that's one of the fascinating things that we've learned from him is that you know, in the old days, the first thing that used to matter was how does it taste? Second was how does it look? And third was how well does it ship because it would come off the tree or come out of the ground and be in the store you know, within moments or days. Now it's the complete inverse of that. So how does it ship is question one. How does it look in the display shelf? Question two. And then how does it taste as a distant third? And so one of the things that's really remarkable about this project is when you, you can pull one of these things off the tree and eat it and it's a taste that no one gets anymore. And in fact some of them no one's had around here anyway, you know, ever. You got a 14th century French plum. I mean that's pretty cool to be tasting something that's, you know, 500 years old. So anyway, so this all goes back actually to um, to the uh, Sierra Nevada Beer Camp event. When we were planning that event, we remembered um, that Sam, this artist, had done this really cool project back in 2005 called The Time Machine, which he, when, when he was at University of Maine, he used to show work at the Whitney Artworks Gallery on York Street, which is this great uh, contemporary art gallery that was around for a few years. And he did a show, and one of the great pieces I'll never forget was this Time Machine, which was a you know workman's trailer, just a regular old work trailer from the outside, but on the inside was a replica Irish pub that he had recreated, you know, with the green walls and the wood paneling and, you know, the oak table. And, you know, he had the great innovation that, in my mind, made it better than any pub you ever go to of actually having the pump right at your own table so you could sit and fill your glass without even getting up. And had the shelf for the Irish whiskey and all this stuff. It's cool. I mean, it's a tiny space, maybe, you know, five by nine square f I mean, it's, it's a tiny space and you can fit four in there comfortably, maybe six if you really, you know, get cuddly and um, this is just great project and so we said well geez I wonder you know if that w with beer camp coming I wonder if the time machine is still out there maybe we could get it and you know hitch it up to the trailer and, and you know bring it to Portland and you know all these artists do all these great projects and end up paying someone to store them um, and they never see the light of day again and indeed that was the case with the time machine it was just sitting in his barn and he said yeah I'm happy to hitch it up and bring it to Portland and in fact I'm coming to Maine for this tree project that I'm working on so of course we said what tree project and that was the tree of 40 fruit 
and he sent me about 10 different links. There was a TED Talk that he had done, an interview in Epicurious, just all this great stuff, and I just, you know, consumed it. And I read one interview in Epicurious where he had talked about wanting to do a grove of these trees. And I thought, that's it. That's, that's what we got to do. We got to be the first grove of the tree of 40 fruit anywhere in the world. I mean, what a great link to the goal behind our project, which is to take this, you know, um, this really interesting hybrid form and figure out how to let it, you know, not to get too poetic, but how to let it bear fruit. And so the idea is that, you know, we planted the first four trees, which is kind of the core part of the grove last October. So they're in the ground now. You can drive down and check them out. And there's all these little white tags on the, on the branches. And each one of those is a different variety. So you can go down and see the tags fluttering in the wind. And you can imagine that those will all be, you know, multiple varieties of these really cool, you know, peaches, plums, et cetera. Um, and so the plan is that as the site gets built out, the grove will grow. So that, you know, when, you know, a building comes online, we plant another couple of, you know, these trees of 40 fruits so that over time, you know, the site and the grove grow together, sort of, you know, Johnny Appleseed style, um, to be able to really create, I think, this pretty fantastic orchard, you know, for the residents of Portland. And one of the great things, uh, I think, about how the project is unfolding is the infrastructure, the sidewalks, you know, getting into the site, those are the first things to come. So before the buildings are even all built out, there's an invitation and a way to get to the site. So that's like the first thing that occurred. So that as the people who live in Libbytown and Rosemont and elsewhere, you know, in Portland, um, you know, see these things coming online, they can just walk into the site that can function as their backyard and have an orchard there, which I think for us is what it's all about. You were a professor, an active professor at the Maine College of Art in art history and cultural history, and you have a PhD from the University of London. So you have a... Seamless move into real estate. <laughs> well, I, I think it's interesting that you have incorporated your art background into the work that you're doing with real estate. And I actually think that's... Um, it's important because not everybody is able to see the business and the art side of things. I think they often are held separate, and then that causes frustration if you're an artist and the business side comes hard, or if you're a business person and you can't access that art side of yourself. Right. So it's interesting that you've been able to bring these together, and it's largely as a result of your own background. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And I think um, I grew up with a real estate developer. My stepfather was a developer. He's a great, just fantastic guy. He passed away a couple years ago. And, um, and we were, you know, fortunately able to work together for, you know, for a number of years before, before he died. And one of the things that I learned early on was how, how much real estate development and really all entrepreneurship in general is, is a creative practice. One where, you know, it's like being a painter or being a sculptor or a musician, you know, it, it rests with you. If you don't get out of bed and do it, it's not going to get done. And real estate development is the same thing. You know, you have your attorneys and your architects and your contractors, but if you don't get out of bed and move the ball forward, the project doesn't occur, you know, at the end of the day. There's nothing necessarily special about me or him other than you kind of get out of bed and be the cat herder and figure out how to, you know, make this project that you know can occur actually happen. You know, it's, it's like having a studio practice in that sense. And, um, and so I, I guess for me, right from the beginning, it made sense that, you know, 
taking something and turning it into something else, which is what real estate development ultimately is. I mean, there, there are people who make great careers doing nothing but Class B office buildings, and they may not look at it like I look at it, but I think what they're doing is a creative practice like, like anything else. And it, it takes, you know, building things in steps and responding to things that change because the world changes. I mean, we've been working on this project for, you know, over six years. Portland's changed a lot. When we started, it was the heyday of the recession. I mean, we could literally walk into the, you know, the planning board. Now you got to wait months because Portland's thriving. And you got to be able to change and, you know, rethink and respond to changing conditions in the world like, like art makers do. I think the other thing that as, as a professor um, at, at Mecca, I learned was how truly creative art students and artists are, and it's not just in the ways that they think they're creative. They look at history differently than a trained historian. They look at you know entrepreneurship differently than a business person, but they're no less creative, inventive, and motivated, and in fact, to me, you know, the, the history of, you know, real estate and the history of artists, you know, um, are, are really one and the same in that you take all these great places in the world that became cool, you know, think of Soho or Williamsburg or East Bayside. I mean, th these are places where, you know, creative work found a home and figured out how to flower and then the city suddenly realized that that was great and cool and other things start to occur around it and that's really the I think the story of great culture happening in cities that either are great or become great um, and for me that's just a fascinating model and one that I think artists and people who you know trade in making culture I think need to be mindful of and need to understand what role they play in making that happen and require that you know some of that equity that they're creating they have some ownership in so for me how to build that into a model you know how to how to actually make sure that that occurs that it doesn't just become you know a cool place that no one can afford to live in anymore i mean you have to balance that and and i guess conversely that's the other side that i think coming from the real estate side you bring to the table is you need to have a balance of kinds of risk in a project. You can't just do 100%, you know, highly risky, you know, let's hope that this occurs. You have to balance that with, you know, some more stable components of your project so that the ones that are really, you know, fairly radical and progressive and, and need help and support in order to thrive. Like, like take, for example, at Thompson's Point, we have this great project called Open Bench which is um, a guy named Jake Ryan put together. It's this really interesting model for, it's a membership structure for, you know, um, makers of all kinds, you know, to be able to have a facility that they can use and share. They've got private workspaces. They've got access to shared equipment. They've got great programming. That's a project that, to me, um, represents how Portland is changing and becoming, I think, this really fascinating small city it's it's growing in ways that i think make facilities like that possible in a way that would they have been a few years ago i, I don't know and i think for us we can't have a whole project of entirely open bench you know that that wouldn't work but neither can we have a whole project of office buildings i mean who needs more of that you need a couple you know and having those and open bench be on the same piece of the earth 
with a circus conservatory and a hotel and a, you know really putting all these uses together and balancing them out I think is to me what makes a great place possible not just a great you know commercial real estate project I mean you can do an office park anywhere in the world why do it in Portland well someone else might really want to do that that's not what we do and I think you're absolutely right that that comes from at least for me and, and um, everybody will have their own trajectory that gets them to where they are but for me seeing how integral artists and people who make culture really are to cities becoming great and figuring out how they get woven into the project from the very beginning and not being you know like the, the whole concern about you know pu public art or you know like coming in later you know like we're done with the project I guess begrudgingly we have to let someone put up a mural now you know that that's I, I wish that didn't have to happen that way and it really doesn't I mean things like that don't add complexity to the process they don't add a lot of cost and if you think about them early they often add tremendously to your project and save you money and so for us I think making sure that you know um, art and kind of creative culture making are part of how we think about the fabric of the project right from the beginning has been has been really key well I'm excited to go here maybe Ingrid Michelson in June or to see the tree I haven't seen the tree yet the Sam Van Aken tree of 40 fruit Chris, is there a website? How do people find out more about Thompson's Point? There is. Um, if you go to thompsonspointmain.com, you'll find um, a wonderful website that launched um, several months back. And then there's also links to the State Theater site. Um, and they're, they're uh, essentially the keeper of the, the concert, you know, logistics and information. So if you want to know how to book a ticket or, you know, where to park or, you know, what have you, you can, you can go to either. Yeah, and and so right, you mentioned Ingrid, Ingrid Michelson on the twenty eighth of June, which is our first show. Then there's Primus on July twenty seventh with Dinosaur Junior. Um, that's a duo that I'm particularly excited about. Um, Grace Potter August first. Then there's a couple of other events. Um, um, the Circus Conservatory is hosting the um, American Youth Circus Organizations um, Festival, which is actually a, a pretty remarkable thing for a startup institution you know there's institutions all over the place that you know vie to get this event and they you know they, they secured it um, so there's uh, 400 you know gifted young circus folks from all over the country converging on Thompson's Point in, in mid-August and uh, and there'll be at least one sort of public performance down there so that should be pretty cool there's a couple other things in the works a couple other smaller events and there's a, a a maker's kind of a, a market um, that'll start and become a regular uh, thing on every every Saturday morning down there. So there's lots of activities starting in June and going forever. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm very glad to know that now as we're flying into Portland or we're driving to the airport or we're going to the bus station, we're going to be looking at this great project that's bringing art and business and culture to the city of Portland. So I, we appreciate your doing that. Yeah. It's, it's our pleasure. We've been talking with Chris Thompson, who has developed several hotel and mixed-use projects in New England. Um, we look forward to hearing more about Thompson's Point here in Portland. Thanks so much for coming in today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine, to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. When was the last time you took a break from what you were doing, from the work that was piled up on your desk, and just looked up? I know that during the course of my days, I often forget to take a moment 
or two to just breathe, look up at the sky, and dream. Terrible that I have to remind myself to breathe, but when I do, I feel energized because in those moments, I'm able to let go of the daily grind and think more about what I want to accomplish, how I want my business to grow. Sometimes those are the aha moments. If we all took a few moments out each day to stop what we're doing and dream a little about our business futures, not only would we feel a great sense of calm, but we may come to realize that these dreams can, in fact, come true. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com. This segment of Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your room. Learn more at rheritage.com. Growing up in Maine, I had the opportunity to go to what is considered to be a more traditional circus at the Cumberland County Civic Center, which is now not called the Cumberland County Civic Center. But what was going on that was beyond a more traditional circus, um, I didn't really know much about. And now there's a lot going on with the circus here in Maine. And today we have Peter Nielsen, who is the president of the Circus Conservatory of America, who's going to talk to us about the circus and his approach to the circus, which is really very exciting. So thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, Peter, your background, you have 25 years of organizational leadership background. You produce theater, music, performance, poetry, dance, and visual arts events and festivals throughout New England for more than two decades. I mean, you've, you've done a lot of things and been in a lot of places doing them. Tell me why the circus? So the circus I discovered uh, mostly through my son. And my son is now 20 years old, and he's uh, studying in Montreal to become a professional circus performer. But when he was uh, when he was born, we were living in Vermont, and we were on the sort of a trail for the summer tour of Circus Smirkus, which is uh, headquartered in Vermont and tours around New England and does you know 70 shows in seven weeks every July and August. And they would finish up their summer tour in August um, in Montpelier, where we were living. And so we had these little kids, and uh, Isabella and Noah, and we would take them to the circus. And when they would come home, they would just, you know, sort of start doing, even when they were just two, they would do somersaults and just sort of try to mimic what they had seen. And they would do it all the way till the next year when the circus would come back. So they were really big circus fans. And as my son, my daughter got really into dance and went off in that direction, but my son was just really into all kinds of movement that was sort of extreme movement, you know? So he would take his, you know, like tricycle down the hill at 100 miles an hour, you know, and just sort of, uh, you know, find all kinds of ways to be dangerous. And he um, had an incredible sense of balance, which a friend of mine who was a stilt walker recognized. And so this friend of mine uh, built uh, Noah a pair of stilts when he was eight. And they were big, tall stilts. And Noah got right on them and uh, talked to my friend who basically said, you know, you don't really have to learn how to walk on them. That comes easy. You have to learn how to fall. So Noah at eight years old just kind of takes me outside and says, all right, you know, I got to start falling. And so he just had this sort of like fearlessness and sense of balance and sort of determination. And all of that became, you know, uh, sort of 
characteristics that led him into the circus. And so we let him go to Circus Smirkus Camp, and he auditioned for the Big Top Tour. He got into it eventually, and he toured for four years doing those 70 shows in seven weeks with Circus Smirkus. And that exposed me to this whole culture, this youth culture of uh, what contemporary circus is that kind of blew my mind open and made me realize that there was an opportunity here for more of that. When I mentioned my experience with the circus, it really, my experience really was big elephants and animals and there was, you know, there was acrobatics, but it, it didn't require, it didn't seem like it's what you're talking about. You're talking about m- more the Cirque du Soleil kind of circus. Yeah, and I think the distinction and, the, and where the sort of shift happened was um, the kind of circus that most of us grew up with here in the United States was essentially a, um, a form of American expansionism, capitalism circus. And what that means is that the circus is ancient and has been around and, and sort of has, has been a part of almost every society in the history of humanity. And uh, in the United States, it took the form of you know, it had a lot to do with the expansion of the railroads and the, and the circuses traveling by train from community to community and bringing things that people hadn't seen before to the frontier, like tigers and lions and bears and elephants. And um, and also just sort of acting out the, um, the sort of, you know, sort of Americanism of what was happening. So you ended up with a very sort of, um, you ended up with a circus that uh, was driven by this sort of, uh, railroad lifestyle and the kinds of people who would live on the railroad and never settle down and things like that. And that, you know, sort of merged with sort of vaudevillian comedy. And uh, what we ended up with in the late 20th century was sort of the Ringling Brothers show, which was the sort of corporatization of all that earlier frontier rodeos and, and things like that. And it has a very strong place in American history. But like a lot of things that happened at the end of the 20th century, you know, it was exposed to globalization. And there were other influences happening in other parts of the world that began to work their way into North America. Uh, specifically, um, after the Bolshevik Revolution in, in uh, Russia and the Soviet Union, uh, Lenin nationalized the ballet and he nationalized the circus, among many other things that were nationalized at that time. But the ballet and the circus uh, both were driven by the same sort of uh, approach of bringing um, the state's influence and military-style coaching and discipline to these two art forms, because the intention was to show how the perfection of the individual would be demonstrated as the triumph of the state, really, what happened. So then, okay, so they bring all these great, all these Russian circus coaches emerge as sort of very disciplined, very highly trained, very capable um, circus coaches. And over the course of the rest of the 20th century, they start moving their way into Western Europe, you know, and, and uh, between the wars, getting involved in like cabaret shows in Paris, meeting up with these French artists and putting together these very artistic circus shows that were also very, very, very um, high level of elite athleticism. And that became the basis of sort of contemporary circus. And in the 1960s in North America, there was a um, renaissance of the performing arts. And there was also a movement in Quebec for uh, Quebec separatism from Canada. And there was this, a nationalist fervor of, you know, of, of having a French cultural identity. So things from France were imported, cultural things were imported to Quebec um, to create this Quebec identity. And circus was one of them. And uh, 
So over the course of the 70s, circus was flourishing. And in 1981, the National Circus School of Montreal, you know, was formed in, in uh, Montreal. And it is the National Circus School of Montreal, not the National Circus School of Canada. But it is, uh, and it's also called ENC, Ecole Nationale de Cirque. And it exists today um, as the um, most highly, you know, respected circus training school in the world. Across the street is an institution that formed three years later in Montreal, Cirque du Soleil, and its international headquarters are across the street from ENC. And they also share a campus with the Tohu Theater, uh, which is the world's most purpose-built theater for circus. All this emerged because um, in the when these sort of European-style circuses became part of the French identity of Quebec. The uh, government invested in it because the Canadian government and the Montreal city government and the Quebec government all wanted to make sure that they maintained this uh, identity that the Quebecers wanted. And they created it and they invested in it, institutionalized it, built the school, gave Cirque du Soleil a million dollar grant for its first tour. And therein lies the birth of a multi-billion dollar industry that is still headquartered in Montreal. And, uh, you know, over the next 25 years, it moved in across the United States, toured around the United States, eventually settled and built many theaters and shows in Las Vegas. And I think Cirque du Soleil does what I've been told about 85% of its revenue in the United States. So what happened then in the last 20 years since that all happened is that all kinds of kids across America got exposed to this new style of circus. And and it's a circus that doesn't have elephants and tigers and bears anymore and doesn't really kind of travel with um, with tents that, you know, move from town to town by the railroad. It's, it's this European-style circus that emphasizes the sort of highest levels of human achievement, whether it's in movement or in daring or in risk-taking or in magic or in theater, it's the whole sort of point of circus is what can a human being achieve and what is that experience like and, and, and how do you make that into art and entertainment and performance. And, um, and that's just a big shift from the sort of, you know, white-faced goofy clowns with big shoes running around sweeping up elephant mess, you know. So there's, there's, that's, what, that's how sort of contemporary circus shifted what American circus is. My understanding is that your son is actually one of the best in the world at a specific way of throwing things in the air. I think this is what I'm under. I don't want to call it juggling because I'm not sure that's what it's actually called, but, but tell yeah, me about you know, this. He would call himself a juggler um, when he's using just sort of uh, you know, street language. Um, he studies object manipulation at Ecole Nationale de Cirque. And, uh, and the specific prop that he um, focuses on primarily is the Diablo. And the Diablo looks like a, uh, an hourglass of sorts. And it's, a, it's essentially a sphere, you know, cut in half with the, with the poles connected with a small axle. And, um, and it's made out of some kind of rubber or vinyl or something. And it's, a, it's the contemporary version of the Chinese yo-yo. So what, you know, so what he does is he has these and he, he can use one or two or three or four or five, however many he chooses to have in his act. Most, pe- most people just use one, um, and uh, unless they're into this advanced performance. And he has two sticks in his hand that are connected by a string that's about five or six feet long, and he, that axle of the Diablo kind of travels on his string. 
And uh, he performs that, you know, sort of how he's become so talented at it is by bringing his own style to it. He studied a little bit of modern dance and ballet, and he um, he's just got the moves, really. And, uh, and he's sort of adapted his own sort of personal aesthetic to the use of this prop and created a very um, unique performance style with it. And then he's also mastered the all the tricks and all the sort of ways you can operate the prop. But it's, it's like in a lot of contemporary circus, it's those two things combined. You have a sort of aesthetic that you develop that's unique and personal, and then you have this training of how to actually technically master it. And when you can bring those things together into a an original performance using an ancient prop, then you're kind of creating something new. I'm really enjoying hearing about this because my son, who's 21, he was very active. He was very daring. He would have been the kid on the tricycle. But unlike you, I did not have a friend who was a still walker. (laughs) (laughs) So my son did the more traditional route, which was baseball, soccer, basketball. And there was something really great about that and something, you know, he learned a lot from being on all those teams. He He got very good. But he no longer does it. And there wasn't, you know, he was a pitcher, but that was about as personal as it got. And there really wasn't much of an aesthetic, at least not at that level. So to hear that your son is actually pursuing something that felt so resonant with him, that makes me happy that we offer that to kids these days. Yeah. And I can tell you a little bit of a story about sort of a specific moment in Noah's sort of, you know, evolution as a human being. <laughs> um, there was a, Noah did a lot of that other stuff too. You know, he put, you know, he was a good lacrosse player, a good skier, park skier, and uh, did a lot of skateboarding, mountain biking, pretty much anything he was into, the traditional things. But when he went to Circus Smirkus camp, there was a, um, and he was about 12 at the time, 11 or 12. And there was this uh, coach there who was about seven or eight years older than Noah, so he was probably, you know, 19, and uh, he had been through Circus Mercus, and and uh, he basically was looking for something to know for Noah to do, and he gave Noah this Diablo and said, try this, and he came back a couple hours later, and Noah had been working on it for two hours, and uh, and Noah, you know, Noah tells me this story, I hear this story once in a while, and uh, and this coach, his name's Eric Bates, Eric said to Noah, wow, you're really good at that. You should stick with it. And as Noah said, he could have been doing anything at that moment, but being a 12-year-old boy and a 19-year-old young man comes up to you and says, you're pretty good at that. You should stick with it. He said, you know, Noah's like, that's why I'm still doing it today, you know, because somebody recognized that and told me to not stop. So that's sort of, you know, that's a big piece of what, you know, when we talk about our kids and what, how they discover what it is they're going to do, that sort of mentor that you discover, at, whether it's a very opportunistic time or perhaps a very vulnerable time, is, is discovering that mentor and having them, you see something in them that makes you respect them, and then they see something in you that encourages you, that's sort of where it all kind of fires up. That piece is really important to you and important to the work that you've been doing with bringing the circus here to Portland. Um, There's going to be a a youth 
circus element going on at Thompson's Point this summer. But what you're really interested in is the more of the coaching element and really creating high-level instruction. Is that right? Yeah. And I think that, you know, to connect those two points you made, I think that what we see is seeing these mentorship happening all the way up a sort of ladder of, of uh, development. So we have very young kids um, who are coming in for, um, you know, we actually have five to seven-year-old programs. We also have, you know, sort of a seven to 12-year-old, and then we get into our high school kids. So we have these we have these sort of paths that kids can keep progressing up through different levels of beginner, intermediate, advanced. And then we have, we, we have, um, we began this year our college club. And that was kids who were involved in, you know, going to college in this area or at least being college age. And and um, and they were invited to come Friday nights and all work together with kids their own age. And on Sundays, we have open gym for them. And this sort of group of like, you know, 19 to 25 year olds start started working on circus with our with our coaches. And I, a lot of our coaches are like 35 and 40. And they've toured with Cirque du Soleil, and they've you know they've already had these careers. So we have a continuum from five to forty-five of people kind of helping people just younger than them kind of move up. And so what we have uh, going on this summer with these coaches that we have in place now is that we have we developed a lot of kids in our college club to not only learn a lot of the techniques and and uh, acrobatics and and different styles of um, of performing circus tricks, et cetera, circus activities. And we've now asked them to come, and they are shadowing our coaches in the, in the uh, teaching the younger kids. And this summer, we have about eight college-age students who are going to be coaching our summer camps. And they are go- going to be mentored by our, you know, 35 to 40-year-old, you know, uh, performer, performing artists that are visiting us. And, um, and together, we're going to create you know, a whole community here on Thompson Point that involves a lot of circus camps and a lot of circus then in the evening, a lot of adult circus classes. And uh, our goal over the course of the summer is to pull out those people from those uh, different groups who really want to perform. And we'll be creating and staging performances. And uh, we have everything lined up from, you know, kids shows by the kids and for other kids to a circus nightclub that we intend to build and really kind of power forward with in the fall on Thompson Point. When I was growing up, there were the there were the music and drama and art people, and then there were the athletes. And then there were some of us that did music and drama and art and were also athletes. There wasn't that middle ground. What you're describing right now is that middle ground. You're describing that true integration of art, aesthetic, physical, kinesthetic. I mean, it's really pretty amazing to hear what you're describing. Yeah, you're kind of hitting the nail on the head. And that's where that's the value that I saw in circus. And that was the culture of uh, that really attracted me to this, because as, as my son got more involved in it I, and, and uh, as he sort of hit that age of, you know, sort of 17, 18 and ha- having all his friends come to the house and stay for a while, they were from all over because they were traveling with Circus Mercus, et cetera. And I got to see this sort of, uh, you know, community, this sort of culture of teenage kids who were super athletes just the you know they could they could have made any varsity team they wanted to but what they were into was this art form and um and it and i began to kind of watch this and say you know this is just unusual to find really artistic aesthetic kids who are really can talk to you for a long time about a painting or about a book they read or something but are also you know just incredibly gifted at using their bodies and 
that was interesting. But then I started observing sort of what the rest of that culture, what the other attributes of that culture included. And I found really intelligent kids, like off the charts, like intelligence and, um, and also a real do-it-yourself culture that was willing to sort of take on anything. Like, um, you know, they, like they started, all these kids, you know, would build their own equipment, build their own props. They you know, got into, you know, they were designing their own costumes, built, they were just sort of do-it-yourselfers. And then they also, um, they also had this sort of determination, like they were in control of their own destinies. And they were just sort of like, not just extreme sports kids, but kind of like extreme humans. And that I found really captivating as a, a sort of culture that when you that I realized was coming from this sort of combination of having this very physical world and being in control of their physical world, having good relationships with their bodies and good control over what they did with it. And, they, and that motivated them also to be very sort of nutrition conscious, wellness conscious. But then they were also very visionary. And, and I saw that you know the combination of these two parts was just really the integration of the whole sort of mind body spirit connection and that what i was witnessing was that when you have the, that sort of whole you know triumvirate of your being in balance then you get this sort of surplus positive creativity and um and that's where i see you know circus arts and and what the opportunity that circus brings to anybody you know, it's when you can be, you know, be socially engaged with other people, collaborating on something and really feeling that, you know, the sort of sense of spirit that that will bring. You're, you're physically, you know, working your body and training to do well with, you know, with what you're doing with your movement and your strength. And then you're also, you know, using your brain and your mind to really look at, at um, how to achieve what you're trying to achieve. And, um, and, and, you know, it's been measured that there's actually, you know, cognitive development that happens with focus on juggling and things like that. So this sort of like, um, it's a really cool culture when you can bring those two worlds together. And the other beautiful thing is that it really brings community together as a result, because, you know, like some of the shows we do, we get people showing up just because they're into these, you know, to see the hand to hand act, the partner acrobatics act, and to see what people can do. And it's all, it's a physical culture. And they go from that to a hockey game or to even a boxing match or something. And then you have other people who see it as a form of dance and a form of art, and they take it back and they, and they look at the, you know, the sort of European paintings that have circuits in it. So to bring all that together is really part of how we hope to um, develop the community around the school that we're building, around the conservatory. And I think that we have a little strong affinity with that and the vision for Thompson Point in Portland in general, because, you know, the way that, you know, um, development is, is kind of shaping up is, is to kind of bring in the best of both those worlds as well, a very artistic community and a very, you know, athletic community. And to take that, you know, kind of step back yet another step, that's what Maine is. That's why Maine's the perfect place for this, because a lot of people are attracted to Maine for the outdoor recreation opportunities, you know, climbing Mount Katahdin or canoeing the Allagash or something. And uh, yet they also participate in the creative economy and, um, and enjoy the sort of quality of life that that creative economy offers. So that's kind of one of the reasons we came here to do this, is that because circus does bring in both of those worlds into one. For people who are interested, you are doing a first Friday that's coming up in June? Yep. First Friday, we'll be in uh, the Congress Square Park next to the Eastland Weston, or the Weston Eastland, whatever it is, and, uh, and uh, across from the museum. 
and uh, we'll be in there and we'll have all kinds of people that are part of our circus community, both our professional performing artists and some of the younger students will all be performing together and uh, demonstrating what it is we do and they get to show off a little bit and show you what their skills are and show you what the acts that they've developed over, you know, depends how long they've been involved with it, but it'll be a good show. How can people find out about the Circus Conservatory of America? Do you have a website? We do. It's circusconservatory.org. And uh, there's all kinds of information in there about our summer camps and our adult programs and the performances we have coming up. And if you're local to Portland, you can just swing into Thompson's Point and you'll find our building in, you know, right there. And, uh, and we're in there a lot. And you know, we don't mind people coming in and checking out what we have going on. We've been speaking with Peter Nielsen, who is the president of the Circus Conservatory of America. And um, I'm really excited by what you're doing. I really appreciate Thank that you. you've had this type, type of vision and you brought it to Maine. And I'm glad that you have a friend who is a stilt walker. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 194, Under the Big Top. Our guests have included Chris Thompson and Peter Nielsen. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed Under the Big Top. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Berlin City Honda of Portland, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Hardingly Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. Love, Maine Radio is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Susan Grisanti, Kevin Thomas, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our content producer is Kelly Clinton. Our online producer is Andrew Cantillo. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See www.lovemainradio.com or the Love, Maine Radio Facebook page for details. <laughs>